that uh, we had debated about what to call the tournament. And I, I made the proposal that it be called the Masters, uh, which uh, Bob Jones uh, promptly vetoed be because he thought it was a little too uh, presumptuous. He insisted that it be called the uh, Augusta National Invitational Tournament. And of course, Bob's uh, views uh, prevailed. That's the voice of Clifford Roberts, a New York stockbroker best known as the co-founder alongside Bobby Jones of Augusta National Golf Club. You probably know now that Roberts eventually prevailed in his choice of name for the golf tournament we all revere today. You might even know that it was Roberts' vision that made the Masters much of what it is now. But what you might not know is how close the Masters came to fizzling out altogether. In fact, long before COVID-19 almost knocked out this year's tournament at Augusta National, the Masters was in a constant state of flux, with each event seemingly in danger of being the last. So how dicey was it for the Masters in those early years? And how did the tournament emerge from the depths of near extinction to become the premier event in golf? Arno Palmer is the Masters champion of 1960. Maybe. Yes, sir! Is it his time? I'm Alex Myers, and this is Local Knowledge, where we take a deep dive into some of golf's most compelling stories. On this episode, we'll examine the surprisingly humble beginnings of golf's most popular event, the Masters. We'll look at the tournament's precarious origins by talking to the man who wrote the definitive history of the Masters, and by hearing from those who have witnessed firsthand the event's dramatic transformation. What happened? How did a seemingly quaint invitational to private club overtake all of golf's more storied and established events? How did the Masters become the Masters? The answer is a little bit of luck, a lot of vision, the guiding hands of a legend, and the dogged determination of a so-called benevolent dictator. To understand the Masters, you first need to understand Clifford Roberts, the club's enigmatic founding chairman. If Bobby Jones was the marquee name attached to the fledgling Augusta National, Roberts was the club's visionary and driving force, even if most of the popular narrative around Roberts is misleading. In the stories that people always tell about the club, they say that they view Robert as the, the financier, he was the money bags, and Jones was the inspiration for this club. And it was actually really the other way around. That's David Owen a longtime writer for both The New Yorker and Golf Digest, who had unprecedented access to Augusta National for two years while he worked on his book, The Making of the Masters. And in case you're wondering, yes, that access included playing the course. A lot. So much, in fact, Owen recalls his group actually skipping Amen Corner once to get back to a party in the clubhouse. Can you imagine? They skipped Amen Corner. Anyway, back to Owen on Roberts. Roberts was broke. He, made, he, he came from nowhere. He had the worst childhood of anybody in the history of the world. His schooling didn't go past eighth grade. He started working uh, to help support the family when he was five or six. Uh, his mother was deeply depressed. She later killed herself, and Roberts and his, and his older brother, uh, and his brother, you know, they helped look after the younger children. And, the, it was, and then when he was 16, he burned down the family's house by accident. So he... Things were terrible, and then he he's, he ended up in New York. Uh, he, his life finally came, started to come together. He made some money, 
uh, as a, he was a stockbroker. And then, you know, th and then 1929 came along. He lost everything, like everybody else. It's important to understand Robert's backstory because it goes a long way toward explaining how he operated Augusta National until his 1977 suicide on the property. After never having much growing up and losing what he did have in the Great Depression, Roberts never took anything for granted and constantly looked for ways to improve the club by reinvesting what little funds the club had in those early days. In fact, Owen writes that Roberts once found $2 on the clubhouse floor and immediately added it to the club's credit ledger. Pretty incredible when you consider how many billionaires belong there now. Roberts shared Jones's vision of building a championship golf course in the South, and the two believed they'd found the perfect location in Augusta's defunct Fruitland Nurseries when they first visited it in 1931. But their timing was lousy. Remember, the American economy was in the early stages of the Great Depression, following the stock market crash of 1929. Deciding to do this at the worst possible time you could, you, you could do it, uh, they, they had these big plans. They're going to have a club of 1,800 members, two golf courses. They're going to build a huge clubhouse. There's going to be horseback riding, tennis courts, all this stuff. But then, all, you know, uh, all this had to be thrown out because they, they, they couldn't get anybody interested in it. That's right. They couldn't get anyone interested. And it wasn't for a lack of effort. Robert sent out thousands of postcards and letters to prospective members. All people had to do back then was to fill out a card and pay a pretty modest amount of money. It was formed as a club where men of means could journey to pleasant place and play with their friends. Prior to the Depression, Augusta had been a popular winter destination. But when the club opened, there wasn't much in the way of travel because money was so tight. One thing that I found when I was working on the book was that there are these folders in, in file cabinets of people writing, no, I would not be interested in joining your golf club. And, you know, many people didn't bother to respond, but there were, there were, there were those. And Roberts would, he, there was a, somebody he was kind of trying to sell on joining the club and didn't want to. And it, the initiation was $350. And he said, you know, why don't you, why don't you and your foursome, why don't you divide it among you? And, you know, for less than a hundred dollars, you, each you can join, and then it would be $15 a year each. And they, no, they didn't, they didn't want to. Incredibly, after three years, Roberts had found only 76 members, well short of his original goal of 1,800. Roberts may have overestimated the allure of joining Bobby Jones's golf course and underestimated the dire situation most people were in at the time. Augusta National, only kept afloat by a small group of its wealthiest members, was in terrible financial trouble and Roberts and Jones believed it needed help in the form of a golf tournament. Just not the one you're thinking of. This podcast is brought to you by the all-new P770 from TaylorMade. Why grind away on a draw if you've already got a fade? If you can hit it high, why bother mastering the stinger? Because the key to better golf is having plenty of options you can count on, and nobody knows it better than TaylorMade. That's why they took everything they learned from making P790, the forged face, the speed foam, and all of the DNA that made it such a beast, and put it into a smaller package. Introducing the all-new P770. Let the sibling rivalry begin. Available at your local golf retailer or tailormadegolf.com. Use promo code GOLFDIGEST for free two-day shipping on any order. Money problems existed throughout the entire building process and beyond. 
Even after enlisting renowned Scottish architect Alistair Mackenzie to design the layout with Jones, there were still questions as to whether they would actually break ground. And once they did in February of 1932, there were more snags, including a failed plan to sell cut-down trees to local lumber companies for much-needed cash. In March of 1933, Roberts wrote the club's creditors proposing a one-year pause in payments. The Augusta National is embarrassed, the letter said. One month earlier, Robertson Jones brought in Prescott S. Bush, the chairman of the tournament committee of the USGA and father of George H.W. Bush, to have a look, hoping to land a U.S. Open. When that fell through, though, Robertson Jones focused on the club hosting its own event the following year. The hope was to attract new members while selling tickets in order to pay down debts. Here's where Jones's presence might have been felt most. Robert Tyre Jones was just 28 years old, but already he was a golfing legend, one of the first truly international sports heroes. Bobby Jones made the game of golf look easy. He took more pride in playing well than in winning. Bobby Jones, Georgia-born with a vast imagination and vision, widely regarded as one of the most influential people in the history of the game. The inaugural event in 1934 was billed as his comeback to competitive golf, and proved to catch the public's attention. But even that required Roberts, both in the conception of the idea and then in getting Jones to go through with it. You see, Jones had retired after completing the Grand Slam in 1930 by winning the game's four biggest events at the time, the US Open, British Open, US Amateur, and British Amateur. Upon walking away on top, he'd signed two lucrative deals involving golf that had caused him to forfeit his amateur status. Unwilling to play as a pro, Jones had moved on from tournament golf. But with the urging of his friend and business partner, Jones agreed to play. As for Jones's murky playing status, Roberts's workaround was to purposely not differentiate between amateurs and pros when listing the scores. Jones was clearly the top draw in the first year and beyond, both in terms of attracting fans and fellow top players, even though he never seriously contended. Bobby Jones. Georgia-born, with a vast imagination and vision, widely regarded as one of the most influential people in the history of the game. But for those who did, the spoils weren't quite what they are today. The tournament's first winner, Horton Smith, didn't even receive his 1500 first place prize right away. The members had to pass a hat around to pay him. By all accounts, it was a well-run event, but it was clearly being run on a tight budget. For the first tournament, they borrowed 66 chairs from local funeral homes. They got some some money from the t- from the city of Augusta to do things like buy grass seed. It was just the 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 only reason the clubhouse still exists. You know, the famous, the most famous clubhouse in the world uh, is that they didn't have the money to tear it down. So you know, it, but it wasn't a clubhouse. It was a, it was a pit. It was uh, it was un unelectrified, it was unplumbed, there was lots of little tiny dank rooms, and they would have been perfectly justified in tearing it down if they had. What's amazing to think about now is how much of Augusta National's appeal is tied to its feeling of seclusion, and yet one of the early plans was to sell real estate around the property. But only one house was ever built, and it didn't last. Owen writes that one of Robert's last acts before committing suicide was to walk to the first tee to make sure the house was gone after the club had bought back the land. So how did the Masters move on up from such meager origins? If Bobby Jones's presence was one factor, particularly that first year, the tourney needed another jumpstart in year two, which it got in the form of Gene Sarazen's famed shot heard round the world. 
a hold forward from 235 yards out for an albatross on number 15 during the final round that led to his first Masters win. It was the type of shot from a legend of the sport that quickly gave the event credibility. But even that instant classic in 1935 couldn't pay all the bills or keep the club's creditors from foreclosing on the property later that year after more than 12 months of delinquent interest payments. Heck, not even McKenzie was ever paid in full. His fee was supposed to be $10,000. Uh, he cut it to five, and he didn't get even that. And, and it wasn't that they were stiffing him. They didn't have any money. You, you look at the, um, uh, the program for the first tournament, and there are all these advertisements in it for, like, a irrigation company and the Florida Humus Company and uh, Mower Company. Those were all people they owed money to. Uh, they owed money to everybody. They owed money for things like toilet paper. But after a bankruptcy restructuring, Roberts, undeterred, continued to push both the club and the tournament to new levels, including that official name change in 1939 from the Augusta National Invitational to the Masters. Slowly but surely, the annual event accomplished the goal of raising money and attracting new members, although the club didn't really become what we think of it today until after World War II. And Jones's presence was an important bridge to those better times before his death in 1971. Hogan, playing brilliantly, needs only to sink the next putt to win. And sink it he does for a winning 280, one stroke over the record. Watches Hogan's congratulated by Bobby Jones as he adds the Masters to his golfing crown. But make no mistake, that methodical rise to prominence rests mostly with Roberts. The man was such a perfectionist that Owen writes he once interrupted a round at Augusta National to have a closer look at the frame of a clubhouse dormer he thought to be crooked. By the time he finished his round, carpenters were already on the roof fixing it. He was a different kind of guy. He was obsessed with the club, uh, with making the club work, uh, and obsessed with the tournament. And that could seem to people like, you know, he was, like he was cold. He was, I mean, he was a chilly personality, but he was, he was so focused on all these things that, uh, you know, and it's, 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 it's because of him uh, that the Masters uh, is, it became what it became, it, because it certainly didn't start out that way. Roberts poured over every detail concerning the tournament as well. And we mean every detail, including a media gift a young reporter received upon arriving at his first Masters. I still have, in fact, from 1967, a, a little telephone book, you know, that he that he gave the press. That's Dave Kindred, who has won essentially every sports writing honor in a career that brought him to Augusta National for the first time at age 26. That was also the year he got his first taste of Clifford Roberts. You know, it's in, it's emblazoned on the front, 1967, and he not only gave you a book for phone numbers and addresses, but he gave you a piece of paper with instructions on how to use it. As if we didn't know to write down someone's name and their phone number. But the thing I remember is that, that he also told us, be sure to use a number two lead pencil because addresses and phone numbers often change. <laughs> and of course he was right. right. Because now I've got a million phone numbers and names in my book unfortunately in ink and it's a complete mess and I can barely read it. Right. And he was right. No matter how often Clifford Roberts was right, his rigid demeanor also rubbed many outsiders the wrong way. 
And yet David Owen discovered a different side of the man widely described as a benevolent dictator. Most of the stories that existed about him then, and they still circulate, were just like these stories that sports writers tell, and they kind of tell them over and over again, and they kind of amplify from one version to the next. The thing that struck me was when I talked to people who, who had known him, you know, they talked it with not just with they didn't just respect him; they really loved him. Mm-hmm. And um, the uh, there was a guy who was he was the CEO of a major corporation. When Roberts died, he he quit the club. He said it wasn't it didn't interest him anymore when he when he wasn't there. It's hard to imagine how little interest networks had in carrying the event in those early years. After World War II, NBC began broadcasting the tournament over radio, but the network declined to air it on TV and gave up all rights in 1956. Whoops, although. To be fair, at the time it would have been hard to picture the Masters becoming the ratings juggernaut it is today. CBS began broadcasting the tournament in 1956, and over the next couple decades, Robert's relentless pursuit to promote the Masters on the small screen is what really set the tournament apart. CBS Television Sports presents Live and in Color from the Augusta National Golf Club in Augusta, Georgia. If you're going to gamble on golf, you may as well do it right. And for any golf fan who's curious about betting on golf but hasn't gotten serious about it, we have the podcast for you. Be Right is Golf Digest's weekly gambling podcast featuring the latest PGA Tour intel and picks from an expert panel that is up nearly 300 units this season. That's a gambling term, by the way. With thoughts from some of fantasy sports' brightest minds and even an anonymous tour caddy at our side, we've done our best to turn betting on golf into a science to help you make money off golf. While we can't promise that you'll come out ahead every week, we can guarantee you'll be well-informed and entertained along the way. So stop doing golf wagers wrong and join us on Be Right. As much as golf fans complain today about the relatively small TV coverage windows of the Masters, Roberts constantly pushed for CBS to show more of the tournament and of the course. In fact, Roberts gave the network back half of the $10,000 the club received for broadcast rights the first year in order for CBS to invest in technology that would allow showing more than just the 18th hole. But his vision didn't stop there. The Masters was also the first tournament with grandstands and a scoring transmission system that kept patrons updated on the action around the course. It was also Roberts who greenlit longtime CBS golf producer Frank Cherkinian's plus-minus system of showing scores based on relation to par on tournament leaderboards. And it was Roberts who first advocated for something else modern golf fans take for granted now, showing golf shots from behind. Roberts had some just some small things too. That it was the first tournament. The first tournament was held over four days. It was typical to, to have, you play thirty six on on Saturday. We just go to Blue Laws basically to do something on Sunday. Uh, he had uh, ideas about uh, spreading the star players through the field so that if somebody had spent the morning getting to the tournament, there would be uh, you know there would be headliners that they could watch. Uh, lunch food always had to be cheap because you thought you know people have come from a long way they should be able to buy an inexpensive meal and it's still true people are blown away when they go to the masters and you can buy a whole meal for less than you would pay for a hot dog at an NFL game Uh, and it's good stuff too and it's all made right there it's kind of an amazing amazing thing I can attest that it's good and cheap those chicken sandwiches mm 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 And you haven't lived until you've had one of those Georgia peach ice cream sandwiches. Fans ate up Augusta National's unique traditions as well. For instance, the decision to award a green jacket to the tournament winner beginning with Sam Snead in 1949. After that, the Champions Dinner and the annual Wednesday Part 3 tournament. 
and of course, the honorary starters. Today is a very special day in Masters history as we welcome back two of our greatest champions. People often mock the Masters' insistent use of the term patron, but Roberts took it quite seriously. He appreciated those who supported the club by coming to the tournament, and in turn, he wanted to serve them well. The Masters became the first event to give out free pairing sheets with additional course info. And the whole point of members wearing green jackets at the tournament was so that spectators with questions knew who to approach. This painstaking, borderline obsessive attention to detail made the Masters both the most coveted ticket in golf and the game's most watched event on TV. And again, none of this came by accident. They were constantly thinking of, of how to make it a better experience for the people who were there. And that's still true. Uh, I remember when I was went to the tournament in the mid-90s, and I was with Dave Spencer, one of the pros, and uh, there was a line outside the bathroom. I said, wow, they're going to be in line for a while. I said, nope, you know, it's three minutes from there. I mean, he knew. They, had, they timed everything. And those are real bathrooms, not porta-potties. Augusta National has certainly come a long way from owing money for toilet paper. But most of all, Augusta National proved to be an ideal setting for watching golf. People talk about TPC at Sawgrass as the first stadium course. But really, I think, you know, Augusta National is probably the first stadium course. There was that whole landscape, the topography of that place has been shaped from the beginning to make it easier for, uh, for spectators to see what's going on. As for viewing on TV, the Masters still has an ongoing one-year contract with CBS. From the Augusta National Golf Club in Augusta, Georgia, CBS Sports presents the Masters. Roberts didn't want the network to get too comfortable, but he also believed in having long-term business relationships, which is why the contract has been renewed every year. The event has remained one of CBS's crown jewels, even though working with Roberts could be demanding. He had a group of people review the telecast every year, and he would share with CBS the findings, which became instructions for the network to follow, including suggested on-air language and personnel decisions. Despite his rigid reputation, Roberts always recognized improvements to his club and tournament could come from suggestions of others, and he believed the TV broadcast should be no different. The evolution has been an evolution. It's been slowly, slowly rising to this stature where it's clearly number one in golf. You know, it's number one in, in, I don't know of any event in America that certainly gets the worldwide attention that mm -hmm. Augusta does. And Augusta has worked very hard at creating this kind of global influence. It's an event unlike any other. You know, I don't like that CBS tradition unlike any other, but it, but it really is, you know, in the sense that it's, it's closer to its original intent than any sports event in the world. Mm. And most of that is because it's uh, refused commercialization, the rampant commercialization. That is most evident to viewers around the world by lack of, well, commercials. At first, if you can imagine, there were no takers when it came to sponsors. But from the beginning, Roberts insisted on limited breaks in the action. And the Masters has maintained that only four minutes of every hour be spent on ads adds that Augusta National controls, obviously. Great champions from Sarazin to Nelson to Sneed to Hogan, and then to the big three of Jack, Nicholas, Arnold Palmer, and Gary Player, helped legitimize the tournament's importance. But no matter the winner, the tournament's true star has always been the golf course. You, know, you can't 
walk onto the grounds without being kind of stunned by just how it's perfect. You know, I, I think there are some golf people who think it is too perfect, that it <laughs> raises the standards to, that most people can't ever reach or don't want to reach even. In particular, the second nine has produced so many memorable, thrilling finishes. Memorable being the key word, in large part because fans forge such a familiarity with the holes, whether they've been to the course or not. Have you seen anything like that? But here it is. The return to glory. And yes, the timing of the tournament helps. Held in April because that's prime golf season in Augusta, the date was originally a deterrent both for holding a potential U.S. Open and for attracting top pros who were busy working their day jobs at their respective clubs during that time. But it wound up being a blessing by becoming the first major on the golf calendar every year producing an anticipation, including commercials that begin running around New Year's Day, that other events can't generate. In fact, former USGA executive Frank Hannigan wrote in a 1996 Golf Digest article that a furious Roberts called him in 1971 to complain about the PGA Championship being held in February, thus making it the first major played that year. Three times married but childless, Roberts protected the club and the tournament as if they were his kids. The reason that the tournament survived despite all this is that Roberts was totally focused on it. Any, uh, they, they did actually attract some new members because of it, uh, which was what they had been hoping for. And, and he, every, every dime that came in, he reinvested in, in the club and in the tournament. So uh, the, every year had to be, be better than the previous one. And, and I think the, the key is Roberts's personality, which is his whole experience of his life was that everything you do goes wrong. Uh, everything, uh, everything gets screwed up. You know, your mother kills herself, your house burns down, uh, your father gets hit by a train. I mean, just everything, every terrible thing had happened to him. And so, I mean, his whole experience of life was that you have to just, you have to focus and concentrate and do everything you can or it will all come apart. That relentless pursuit of perfection can still be felt today through the strict guidelines that have descended from Roberts. Among the famous no-nos are the prohibiting of running and cell phones. As a fan in my 20s, I was once scolded to sit up straight on the grassy bank below the 6T. And no one gets off easy. Not even a legendary sports writer who has been covering the event since Lyndon B. Johnson was president. I called into the principal's office last year. Oh. You know, because... Uh, and I had missed the instructions or something, and maybe it was that credential, but I asked a question in, a, in the press room, apparently out of turn. Speaking of presidents, it doesn't hurt a golf club's prestige when one is a member. In fact, Dwight D. Eisenhower spent much of his eight years in office playing Augusta National and working remotely for Mike's cabin, which Roberts helped create as a backup White House. Here's Roberts describing Eisenhower's trip to the club after winning the 1952 election to become commander-in-chief. Uh, he came here the morning after he was elected president. And he was here for several weeks. Uh, that was in 1952 that he was elected, and he came here immediately afterwards. And, and this was where his uh, uh, cabinet was formed and his plans for his trip to Korea was made. 
Having the leader of the world spending so much time at your golf club is quite the power trip. It's no wonder modern technology allows the tournament to track your every move through your badge. When a green jacket calls on you in the press room, he addresses you by your name, even if he's never laid eyes on you before. It's pretty wild, and, well, I'll just say I'm sure there's a constructive reason for it, because I'd like to be allowed back at some point. Few non-members have spent more time on the grounds than Kindred, who until this year had only missed one Masters since 1967. Dave's got a funny story about that one-year absence. Well, he can laugh about it now, at least. My son decided to get married on April 13th, 1986. And uh, so I was torn. I was really torn. (laughs) Do I go to the wedding or do I go to the Masters, which I'd been to for 20 straight years? And of course, the wedding wedding won. And uh, I paid attention to the Masters from afar. On Sunday after the wedding, after the wedding reception, I went into the house and turned on the TV at exactly eight o'clock. I I don't know why I remember that other than I turned on the TV and the first item on the news was Jack Nicholas today shot a 65 and I went, Oh, bleep, (laughs) you know, because I knew that I'd missed a a great moment. Although Dave wound up getting a letter from the Golden Bear himself that made him feel better about missing that fabled 1986 tournament. Sort of. Jack said that that he understood my decision, that family comes first. Jack always is adamant about that and has lived that. And he said that, but if you do want some details from that Masters, I remember most of it. There are few, if any, at the club who remember those early lean years. And it's certainly hard to imagine the home of the green jacket ever being in the red, or Augusta National's clubhouse sitting in a state of disrepair on a property that now oozes perfection. Ahead of the 2020 Masters, the tournament's Twitter handle tweeted out videos of workers readying the place, often described as a cathedral of the pines. Even wielding a leaf blower looks majestic at Augusta National. Unable to sell plots of land around the golf course the first couple decades, The club has spent the past 20 years gobbling up some 110 acres of surrounding property, including the $26 million purchase of a nearby shopping center in 2020. Often, the land is simply used for free parking for patrons during that one week in April. But there have also been some major structural changes to the year's first major, almost as if they're making up for those early projects that Robertson Jones never got to do. A series of tunnels here, a gigantic merchandise store with waiting lines you'd expect to see at Disney World there, and a press building that, with all due respect to Ike, might be more impressive than the White House itself. I've advocated for this, that, that every sports event should be covered from the Augusta press building. Yeah. You know, we should all go there for the World Series and the Super Bowl <laughs> and everything else, because what can be better with the huge TVs and the Quonset Hut little restaurant sitting out there right. you know they should rent it out yeah you know for like the america's cup yeah we could watch the america's cup from from there they really could rent it out but of course they won't because when it comes to balancing the books these days augusta national is doing just fine thank you
Local Knowledge is produced by Gregory Gottfried with editorial guidance from Sam Wyman. Our music for today's episode is called On My Way A, and it's by Lobo Loco. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe to Local Knowledge wherever you get your podcasts. And be sure to check out Golf Digest's weekly gambling podcast, Be Right. Thank you.